You know, when historians describe our country, they call it the melting pot. A pot. We learned that in grade school history, hopefully. That is, we live in a land with a variety of peoples and cultures that have somewhat assimilated into a cohesive whole. One can argue about some of the specifics, but in general, the American experience has led to amazing results. Because the founding of this country has Judeo-Christian roots, historically speaking, our roots are what theologians call monotheistic. That is, the vast majority of immigrants to this country believe in the existence of one God, a common belief among Jews and Christians and Muslims. So in general, it is what we know. It is a given. While some have strayed from traditional faith today, few talk about multiple gods or a polytheistic understanding of the divine. But this hasn't always been the case. For example, the ancient Greeks worshipped 500 gods. The ancient Romans worshipped 5,000 gods. The ancient Hindus worshipped 50,000 gods. Good grief, how to keep them all straight. And the more gods and goddesses there were alleged, the more complicated it was to relate to them. In general, the gods became more and more remote, often terrifying, violent, jealous, and punishing. In many cultures, gods were not beings that were to be loved or to have a relationship with, but rather they were to be avoided at all costs and appeased so that violence would not be perpetrated on the people. For example, the Aztecs in central Mexico believed in 200 deities, and to keep the peace, historical evidence tells us that for centuries, up to 20,000 people were sacrificed to the gods each year. And then came Jesus of Nazareth, the one true God. Everything about Jesus wasn't just a a little different, but a lot different. He spoke in terms of an intimate relationship with his father. And the love between them is the power of the Holy Spirit. And that Trinitarian love of the one true God spilled over into us, into the story of human beings. No wonder he caught the attention of so many in his day. God was no longer remote and menacing. You are no longer slaves, he says. I call you friends. Today's gospel taken from St. Luke is the beginning of what is called the Sermon on the Plain. We find a parallel to this passage in St. Matthew's Gospel that is called the Sermon on the Mount. As these titles suggest, there are differences between these accounts that are connected to what St. Matthew and St. Luke are trying to say about Jesus in their Gospels. When preached from the mountaintop in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is speaking with authority and the voice of God. The mountaintop is a symbol of closeness to God. Those who ascend the mountain see God and then speak to him. For Moses, for example, who received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai and brought them down to the people. But St. Luke introduces the location of Jesus' sermon on level ground, like, for example, in Indiana, alongside the disciples and the curious gathered crowd. He presents Jesus' authority in a different light. As we heard at Christmas time, he is Emmanuel. He is God with and among us. In his ministry, he debunks the polytheistic, often tyrannical reign of ancient gods by coming right down with the people and interacting with them. 
loving them, healing them, living with them, listening to them, feeding them, and teaching them. And he can say for the same for us. He interacts with us in those members of the body of Christ. He loves us. He heals us. He lives with us. He listens to us. He feeds us. He teaches us. Another distinction found in St. Luke's version is the audience. Luke, his sermon on the plain is addressed to people that were called disciples, along with the gathered crowd. So clearly, Jesus already had adherence to his gospel, while St. Matthew's sermon on the mount is addressed to just a large crowd of people that have gathered. And as we just heard, the the Beatitudes in St. Luke's gospel sound more personal than they are in St. Matthew's gospel. Luke uses the article you, blessed are you, whereas Matthew used the word they or those. There's also a difference in number. St. Matthew describes eight Beatitudes, while St. Luke presents just four, each of them with a parallel warning. Beatitudes aren't unique to Jesus. Beatitudes are found, for example, in the Psalms, in the Old Testament. They are a way to teach about who finds favor with God and by how they live their lives. The word blessed in this context might be translated as happy or fortunate or favored. As we listen to this gospel with modern ears, the Beatitudes are jarring, frankly. Those who are poor, hungry, weeping, or persecuted are called blessed. The Beatitudes from this new and only God are part of the gospel of reversals. Those that is in, are often thought to have been forgotten by God are now blessed. And the list of woes, those who we might ordinarily describe as blessed, are warned about their peril. Those who put their trust in, pers- in riches or possessions or laughter or reputation, these are, not those th- these are not things that we can depend upon as sources of eternal happiness. In fact, they often lead us to doubt God and his magnificence and numb us to his command of love. They not only fail to deliver on their promises, but, as the, uh, are the, but are the recipients of misplaced trust that lead us to our demise if we believe them to be anything that has eternal weight. The Beatitudes are often described as a framework for Christian living. Our vocation as Christians is not to be first in this world, but rather to be first in the eyes of God. We're challenged to examine our present situation in the context of our ultimate goal, that is, the kingdom of God. So suffering is not always and primarily punishment, as those in in the ancient world believed. Rather, to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must open ourselves up to the refining power of suffering, That's why we fast, for example, during Lent, knowing that as St. Paul wrote to the Romans, all things work for good for those who love God. Again, Jesus' message was attractive, most especially because the poor and the simple, as well as the learned and the rich, could all come away with a better understanding of who God is and what he desires for us. And Jesus offered an experience an explanation as, why, as to why we suffer and the good that it will bring in this life and in the next. But today, 
In our worldly sophistication, we seem to be going backwards. That is, in our arrogance, we reject the redemptive power of suffering. We want all of the creature comforts and earthly happiness. And this worldly conviction leads us to reject anything called truth that may have been revealed by God. And if we dismiss his will for us, eventually we dismiss God himself. And then we are returning to polytheism. Millions and millions of gods in our own country alone because we are all gods who preach our own personal truths that conflict with other personal truths until at last we live in fear and trembling of the gods once again. And all we have to do is look around and see the world of our own making that leaves us unsettled, conflicted, depressed, and unhappy. So remember the plane on which Jesus preaches today and consider the rocky terrain that we make to our own detriment by ignoring Jesus of Nazareth, the one true God. He is calling us to invest not only in the things of this world, but most especially to invest in those gifts that last forever.